Welcome to Rolling Studies. This is the podcast of the Hogwarts Professor. My name is Nick Jeffrey, and I'm a writer at Hogwarts Professor, and I'm joined with Dr. John Granger, the Dean of Harry Potter Scholars and the Hogwarts Professor himself. It's it's a it's a wonder to be here, Nick. So this is our first pilot episode for uh, Rolling Studies. Uh, and John, do you want to tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing here? Our, our primary aim here is to stretch your thinking. I'm assuming you're a serious striker, a Potter pundit, a rolling rereader. What Nick and I want to do here is challenge, even to upset your ideas, if not your feelings, about who Rowling is, what she's writing, why we should care. I mean, there, there are plenty of fan sites that share excitement and enthusiasm or deliver conventional approaches in thinking about story in general and rolling specifically. Rolling Studies, this podcast, is not one of those podcasts. If, if you want a roller coaster ride of contrary thinking and ideas that will demand you reconsider the way most readers think, you're in the right place. That's not to say that we're not excited or we're not enthused by what Rowling writes. I think the point is we we want to know why. We want to know what it is about what J.K. Rowling produces that uh, creates, that generates this excitement and enthusiasm. And that's, that's, that's always been the question, you know, whence Pottermania, et cetera. Our, our, focus, our focus, in addition to that, is also unique. This is not a, a Harry Potter podcast, a Cormoran Strike podcast, or even the latest thing Rowling has written or is about to publish podcast. By, by Rowling Studies, we aim to deliver a view of anything Rowling has written or is writing in the context of everything she has written. All her books and screenplays and script, but mostly her novels, as well as her interview catalog of 25 years. In the 15 years since the publication of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Rowling has surpassed in page count all of her Wizarding World efforts with non-magical texts, the themes and artistry of which books throw important light on her more famous work. Again, if you want an integrated, inclusive, higher view of Rowling's writing, you're in the right place. That's what we're about here at Rowling Studies, as we are at the Hogwarts Professor weblog and Substack. And we do mean everything. So within the past few weeks, I have reread my favorite of, of all Rowling's works, Casual Vacancy. Uh, I've reread because we're just decorating our house in time for the Christmas season. I've reread uh, A Christmas Pig, uh, and we will, we will shortly be talking about both of those works. I, boy, Nick, you, they should tag you and follow you around. Anybody that thinks Casual Vacancy is your favorite work, that, that is an amazing... Thing. It speaks to your perspective. All right, um, but back. So we talked about we talked about uh, our attitudes. You know, it's not just enthusiasm, but though it is enthusiastic, it, the focus is very broad. Not just the latest work, not what we're, what she's working on now, but the biggest twist about Rolling Studies is what we think of as being a generational shift in the field. We're, we aim to talk about what we know about Rolling's life her core beliefs and defining experiences, what she has said inspired her work. Rolling Studies is a study of rolling the person then, as well as rolling the writer. 
a common sense, but to this point neglected aspect of understanding her work, despite the author's insistence that it is essential to that project. Some of that necessarily will be speculative because as much as the author has invited a biographical reading, she's also taken real care to guard her past and to choose friends that will not discuss it outside their close circle. If you're equal to connecting the dots between, say, Rowling's personal ups and downs and the plot lines of her work, her lake inspiration, in order to gain a greater appreciation of her shed artistry, and I'll explain those terms later, you're going to love the conversation here at Rolling Studies because we will be diving into that lake, as weird as that is for me. So we, we, we very much are, are different scholars when it comes to, to studying Rowling's work. I mean, John has pioneered the, the structure and, and artistry of, of Rowling's shed work, the, the, the mechanics of how she constructs her, her story for decades. I, I joined my journey into studying uh, Rowling. The first, the first book I ever read from hers was my favorite, The Casual Vacancy. Probably the most obviously biographic of uh, all of her works. Uh, and, and I have been interested to the point of obsession studying beyond the headline story of the, the penniless single mother in, in, in Edinburgh through her meteoric rise, her, her charity work. Her life is fascinating. That what we know of her life, it is fascinating. And you can see in, in many of her works where some of that comes through. Now that's that's a big part of her of her lake, of her inspiration. The other part, of course, I think has been much better documented. And that's that's the, the inspiration she takes from literature. I think life and literature are, are the two key threads to that that lake inspiration. Yeah, and this this is not gossip. Um, if, if, and this, this is the reason I've come a, a, around to when I read Casual Vacancy, I wrote a post in 2012 saying, "Okay, look, it's it's an idiot's work to connect the dots here. You know, this every every character in this book is a rolling shadow." And in that same post, I said, but we're not going to go there because it doesn't help us understand her artistry. It, it, it's not, you know, it, it's like, let's pretend that Shakespeare was not a human being. He, he was a machine that produced these plays. We don't care about Shakespeare the person. We want to get at Shakespeare the text and the plays. And I took that snob position that we're not going to go into the lake because of basically a C.S. Lewis position called the personal heresy. Don't get consumed by... Don't reduce the author's work to just being projection from their personal life. I've, largely through my contact with Nick and conversations with Nick, I've been brought around to the, the uh, you, you must integrate the lake to understand really the accomplishments in the shed. And, and again, I, just, just real quickly, that those this lake and shed comment comes from a 2019 interview that Rowling did with the BBC Four program, the Museum of Curiosity, in which she discussed her process, her writing process from inspiration to publication. And in that, that thing, she, she says basically she has two images that she uses, the lake and the shed. The lake is what she described as basically her unconscious mind gives her um, story ideas that are snapshots of her unresolved psychological issues. And she takes this story stuff, this blob, because like she, thinks, she describes something like molten glass, and she takes it into her shed where she reflects on it and transforms it into proper narrative. So it's not just, you know, Joe's problems, 
projected, it's not Mary Jane stories, whatever they call this. Um, it's not like that. It's uh, Rowling transcending her personal thing and actually coming to terms with her unresolved issues in her stories. But you can't get what the shed is about until you get the stuff out of the lake. Um, and so Nick's contribution here, <laughs> what, well, one, I think you live, what, what uh, you know, eight blocks from, from uh the scene of casual vacancy. I mean, isn't, isn't that isn't that just down the street? It's, it's barely an hour away. That's, that's, I mean, it's, uh, it's spooky. You're a long way from Oklahoma City. That that that, that um, perspective that Nick brings to this, I think, is a revolutionary one, really, for rolling studies, and that you, we're going to integrate rolling in her life into an appreciation of her as an artist, um, which which is, of course where every writer of note, studies of every writer of note, to include the Shakespeare I just talked about, is, is about now. You, you can't get at the transcendent artist without understanding the specific person who generates that artistry. Um, and Rowling is certainly no exception to that. She invites that thing with her Lake and Shed uh, interview and, and discussion of her process. All right, well, and, and having said all that, um, that we're not going to be the podcast that talks about Rowling's latest work and, in anticipation of her next work. Let's just jump into discussion of Running Grave in anticipation of <laughs> what what uh, Strike Strike Eight will be about. I, um, yeah, why are we doing that, Nick? <laughs> so, so, so we're doing that because we we are the podcast that believes in breaking all the rules. We're also, I think, going to dive straight into structure in this one as well. I get we're going to break our own rules just to show that we're. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Um, the, we're we're the iconoclasts of iconoclasts. I love it. Let's just let's just totally go off the board. All right, <clears throat> Nick, this 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 podcast we haven't mentioned it yet, but this this first podcast is really about um, Charlotte Campbell Ross. You know, the, certainly one of the great creations of of Rowling's entire works. Um, though she's she's largely in the shadows. We don't we don't really see that we don't get that much Charlotte Campbell Ross. I think I think Running Grave may be the the the, the most we see of her and hear from her in any specific books. Trouble Blood is close, but I mean this is this is a big deal Charlotte Campbell and Running Grave. Um, I mean she even speaks to us coming back from the dead. I mean this is, this is a remarkable we get we get a, a surfeit of Charlotte Campbell Ross material. Um, we we are led to believe that Charlotte Campbell Ross committed suicide that she. Uh, slit her wrists in the bathtub and bled out there, um, leaving a suicide note that, that told all, um, a note which has since been destroyed. Uh, and all of us, except for one person, all of us uh, were totally on board with that. I mean, we'd been set up for that brilliantly, um, except for you, Nick. Um, Nick, tell your story of discovery. What made you think that Charlotte had been murdered rather than commit suicide. Well, John, I'd really like to say that I, I noticed this because J.K. Rowling told me to look out for it on page one, chapter one, part one, where, where we have Strike interrogated by a gaggle, a gaggle of ladies at the, um, at the christening ceremony asking, when did Ar you realize? Harpies. When did you realize it wasn't suicide? I'd love to say that, but I, I sailed straight through that. But I, I always, I always pay attention to Charlotte. And I have done 
all the way from Cuckoo's Calling because Charlotte is a strange character for a feminist to write. So the psycho ex is, is the classic trope that an abusive partner brings forth when they're explaining previous relationships to a new girlfriend. Now, now we know in, um, in Ink Black Heart, Philip Ormond, the classic abusive boyfriend, uses it of his ex-wife. And, and we know immediately that it's one of those lines. But we get Strike constantly using the same lines. Don't listen to Charlotte. Charlotte lies. Charlotte's just trying to create drama. And that, that's, that's exactly what an abusive partner would say. Now, we know, because we're, we're with the author on this, that in this case, it's true. When we first came across her in Cuckoo's Calling, and of course I read it many years after the grand reveal, so I knew exactly who the author was, I thought it was an incredibly subtle um, trick to try and convince the reader that the author is male, that there is this psycho ex made real. But she comes back the same, book after book after book. Now, now, I started really paying attention when we first heard about her in um, The Running Grave, um, and it was that news report with her new partner, strangely blank and glassy-eyed. So there's something there, and we hear about the assault, but as soon as the suicide was announced, in, in you know, near enough the middle of the book, I remembered John writing about the chiastic structure of these suicides that were murders in 1, 4 and 7, anticipating 7 being the end of the series and we would be investigating the apparent suicide of Leader Strike. At that point I was convinced I was convinced, okay we have a 1, 4, 7 murder disguised as suicide somebody has killed Charlotte but my big question is okay that's that's how I got there John why why didn't you see it I mean I mean <laughs> yeah. that's pretty embarrassing Nick but you say the reason the reason you got it was because I told you it would be there <laughs> and then I don't see it well okay <clears throat> I'm, I'm gonna explain why I didn't see it we expected that Seven would have a fake suicide murder in it, but we expected that that fake suicide murder would be Lita Strike's murder. All right, and, and hence all of the speculation at Hogwarts Professor about who killed Lita Strike. And I still think Dave Polworth is, is the man. But anyway, um, that, that um, we really thought that, that for the, the, the latch of the series to work. Remember, we thought then it was, it was strictly a seven-book series. She said more, but we didn't have a, didn't have a number. We didn't really see it. So you're saying seven is going to be the end. It's, it's the parallel series idea says it's going to be like Potter. Therefore, we're going to see a, a, that, that mystery that we have from the very start, Lita Strike's death. It's, it's going to be resolved in this book. Well, then we get the synopsis in the first chapters, and, and then we get the whole book. And there's nothing really in it about Lita other than that, yeah, she was at that Norfolk commune. There's, there's just nothing in there about Lita. So 
Okay, so we're going to 10 books. This is not that kind of close. But um, that, that big push, too, from rolling that it was not going to be seven books, that seven was not going to be the finale. It was going to go to 10 books. That dissipated the expectation for me, and if it did for me, it probably did for everybody else, that 147 would play out as well as it did. Now, I spent six weeks <laughs> um, documenting that 147 indeed was a real thing that um, Cuckoo's Calling, Lethal White, and Running Grave are the axis of a, a completed ring in the seven-book series. Um, and I, I do hope somebody other than you, Nick, will read all of those books. I shouldn't say that. There's, there's <laughs> some, some marvelous um, uh, subscribers, you know, Albus and Ed and uh, Sandy and others at, at Harvard's Professor at the Substack that, are, that have clearly read all of those things. But um, I, I, there's no excuses. I just forgot all that work and expectations that we had had over like, what, five, six years that, that seven was going to have a fake suicide in it. And, and yeah, I, 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 what can I say, Nick? Um, I was, um, despite all of my, you know, larger view pretensions and such, I was totally sucked in to rolling setup. All right. Now, <clears throat> Okay. I've touched on this 10-book problem because it, it, we, we do have a 10-book problem and that seven really did, you know, this, there, obviously there's a lot of stuff that has to be resolved besides the Robin-Cormoran uh, relationship. It, it, we, we do need extra books. We do need at least a book eight or something. To, to, um, but you argue almost in passing that the Charlotte was murdered idea is a potential solution to the 10-book series problem. You got to explain that. Review that first. First, review the problem and how Charlotte's murder could explain how the next three books relate to the first seven. Okay, so so I, I think that there is a strong argument that we have that seven book cycle. It works chiastically. It works as a parallel series. So we have that seven book block, and we have the murder suicides one four seven. Now that leaves another three, and we don't know really where they fit yet. Evan's got a brilliant post um, on his proposed solution to that that structure, but I think we can all agree that that if we're going to solve Leader's murder, that's going to be in ten. That's going to be the finale. So then we have murder suicides in one, four, seven, and ten. Well, we're going to need, we've got that seven book structure and we've got three. We need something to latch those together. And we have this suicide in seven, investigation in eight, latch to bring those okay. two series together. So what you're saying is, is that we're going to get Charlotte's murder investigated in eight, really, so that seven and eight almost bleed in one to the other. Though it's a, yes. it's, though it's a shocking reveal in the beginning of eight, you know, we're going to have real land, a real landmark beginning to eight in that um, it's it's clear that Murphy's about to propose. We don't know if he's going to try and catch Robin in a pregnancy trap, not knowing that she's sterile. But um, that, uh, that's 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 another podcast. Um, and and Robin just reeling from the fact that Strike has all but said, and again he doesn't quite say it, but it's all but said, "I love you, dear. I, I you know, I, I you know, please marry me." She's reeling from that, and then we get something that 
you know, maybe it's one of uh, Charlotte's other crazy brothers who comes in and says, you know, there's a lot going on here that you don't know about this this billionaire boyfriend and Amelia. Um, that transition that you're describing between seven and eight, so that seven and eight just slip right into each other with, with those big changes, that just, just remarkable, you know, sea change type moments, really as big as the opening of book one, you know, where, where Robin is, is getting engaged and uh, Cormoran is dealing with a breakup with Charlotte. So book eight, you're saying, is going to begin with Robin's engagement, figurative or literal, with Cormoran and strikes really coming to terms with Charlotte and her death. Um, and that will then lead, you, you think, I'm, I'm, I, this, this is, this is I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this and enthusiastic, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it together. You think book 10 is, is going to finally be the lead of strike mystery? I, th I think it's got to be. I, th I think that, that is the mystery that, that we've been following ever since book one. That's that's got to be that's got to be the the if there's going to be a series finish that's going to be the the series finisher, but that that um that seismic moment that that strike realizes that Charlotte's death is a murder I was convinced was going to happen in seven, <laughs> so we we had this interview with Amelia that was delayed and delayed, and finally happened and I read that interview in. In almost disbelief, I had to read it again because I thought my eyes were, were tricking me. I was convinced that Amelia was going to demand that Strike starts the investigation there and then. But this is so funny because uh, uh, I, along with every other serious striker on the planet, read that chapter thinking, oh, yeah, Charlotte, we knew she was going to commit suicide. <laughs> and, and, and we don't think it's weird at all that Strike says... Let me tell you what she wrote in that note. I'm not even going to have you tell me. I want to tell you what she wrote. And Amelia just nods her head like, yeah, sure. You go ahead and tell me about something you haven't even read because you know so much about it. And I'm telling you that the reason that another reason that I didn't um, think that Charlotte was murdered was that I wanted her to have committed suicide. I want Charlotte out of the way. All of us on Team Strike, which is everybody, because, I mean, Team Robin and Strike, really, want the two of them to get together. It's, it's the happily ever after ending that we're all longing for. Everything points to. And the biggest obstacle in the way has been Charlotte Campbell Ross. Robin has her insecurities about her. Strike has his fears that this infection is going to, you know, come, come up in him again and take it over his soul. And everybody wants Charlotte out of the way. So when Charlotte Campbell commits suicide, praise God. You know, let's, you know it's, it's one of those... Um, death of Scrooge type moments where we'll dance on her grave. We're so happy to have her out of the way so that the real business of the story can continue that we did not think, wow, this woman was suffering throughout this entire book, begging Strike for an opportunity to meet with her so she could share some of her issues. Nothing. He just cuts her off. He, 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 in fact, he doesn't quite kill her, but he does nothing to stop this death. He is... He, he admits that he is largely responsible for her death and that he did nothing, nothing to stop her. Cormoran essentially was helping you and the rest of the, the strikers out there as hard as he possibly could. That's right. in, I mean, in, I mean, in terms <laughs> of his in terms of his 
uh, SIB technique. That was an anti-interview. <laughs> he, he got he got nothing from Amelia. He told Amelia what the evidence was going to say. He essentially held his hand up as being the guilty party anyway. Yeah, it's it's but, yeah, it's but, it's it's genius misdirection. We'll talk about that. But, uh, citing Nick that you've done there, where you've said that seven and eight are going to be the Charlotte Campbell Ross murder mystery. You know that once again, we have a suicide. Are there any suicides in Strike that are not suspicious? You know um, that that suicide is not a suicide that she was you know she was drunker uh drunk or drugged and a, a guy came in saw her there undressed her put her in the bathtub sliced her wrist and she's dead you know and, and walks out you know it, it, maybe she's already drafted her suicide note or something so he's, he's it's, it's a perfect set he walks out now that that brilliant not only do you get the murder did you spot the murder but you've explained the chief mystery of the structure which is how we're going to link um, the one through seven ring, which is a tight ring, with the remaining three books. And, and essentially, you're saying you're going to see uh, eight be a continuation of seven to link it to the first ring, ten being the final resolution in Lita. Um, I guess we'll have to have another podcast to discuss what strike nine is going to be because everything else is already laid out. You know, you, you, you've done that for us. Um, Anyway, but you found you found more evidence. So you've you found more structural evidence that this is a real possibility, and this is somehow based on dragons. Yeah, <laughs> it's dragons. It's always in the dragons. <laughs> um, yeah. If again, this is this is our larger view thing. You, go back to the Potter series because we are the Corman Strike is is a parallel series to Harry Potter, with addenda obviously, but the seven books have been written in parallel. And what we see in one, four, and seven is is that you know, really the structures of Philosopher's Stone, Goblet of Fire, and Deathly Hallows are essentially the same. You know, you've got three big adventures that that, that, that the uh, the the trio take, um, and they come to some magical object. I mean, it's, it's it, even even that like the, the last battle in the three books where the, you know, the gauntlet they run in Philosopher's Stone to get to the Mirror of Eris said the, the gauntlet that Harry runs in the last Triwizard Tournament obstacles and the Battle of Hogwarts set things. There, there's seven elements. Of course, it's seven. Seven elements in each of the book from a magical plant to a riddle to you know, a mythical creature. You know. One, four, and seven are like, are like images of each other, so you see that story access. But an interesting extra to that foundational similarity between one, four, and seven is the dragons. In that you see a baby dragon born in Philosopher's Stone. Pretty close to the action of the book. I mean, it's, it, Philosopher's Stone is a weird book because Harry doesn't even get to Hogwarts until chapter seven of a 16 chapter book. Yeah, so um, yeah, pretty close to the beginning of the action. You get Norbert or Norberta um, and Hagrid's birthing it from a, a, an egg in his, in his hut you know um, and then you go to book four and really the dead center of the, at least the triwizard tournament uh, which is the, the which is the first triwizard tournament event is the dragons you know the hungarian horntail really the chapter called hungarian horntail is the dead center of the entire series it's the center of the center book of the seven book series and there you see not a baby though you, you see eggs but you see you know Dragons in their majestic glory, maternal glory. You know these these uh, very mature, very dangerous adult dragons. 
And then you go to book seven, and, and near the end, the 20, 20, chapter 26 out of 36 chapters, you get the Ukrainian iron belly, you know, ancient of days in the, in the deep, darkest depths of, of uh, Gringotts. Who is, is their means to exit and, and go on with the story, the rest of the story. Now, the, so you see in the progression from the dragons in 1, 4, and 7, you see the first book has the baby, the second book has the adult, and the, the third part of the axis, the seventh book, has this Ancient of Days thing. Now, if you, if you take that structural uh, thing and you look over to Cormoran Strike, which again is a parallel series, you're going to see that the book opens with John Bristow, but the first book opens with a murder. You know, you, you got Lula Landry splattered on the street. Um, and, and you've got uh, Carver screaming, the cow jumped, you know, it's a suicide, it's obvious. Then the, the first chapter of note is John Bristow arriving and saying, I want you to investigate this murder. So here's, here's, a, here's a, a sibling of sort, a step sibling coming in and saying, I don't think she committed suicide. I think she was murdered. John Bristow, of course, has every good reason to believe that she was murdered, having shoved her off the roof. But um, the next, if you go to four, there's, there's plenty of suicides after that in, in, in uh, Career of Evil and The Silkworm. But you know, in, in, the, in the 147 sequence, you get a fake suicide. It's in the dead center of Lethal White, where Jasper Chiswell's body is discovered by... Cormoran and Robin at the end of, of part one, which isn't labeled part one, and then, then part two opens up with Izzy Chiswell meeting with Strike saying, there's no way that my near relation committed suicide. It was a murder. And he, of course, does the same thing he did with saying, oh, well, you know, everybody who commits suicide is caught on this side and da da da. He, I mean, it's, it's an almost word-for-word -word repetition of his interview with Bristow. So much so that you're thinking, is he Chiswell killed her father? You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, you're thinking this is such a parallel. Um, and again, that part two, that missing page mystery in Lethal White, there's, the missing page is part one. There's no part one. But Rowling gives you part two, which says, now we're at the second half of book four. We're starting the second half of the series to bring us back to book seven. And so Strike begins the investigation. I think Beatrice Groves marveled. She says, has any you know, detective novel of this length ever put off the murder until the halfway point in the book, you know? Um, well, Rowling did that deliberately. So you'd have the beginning at the beginning of the first book and the in the, in the middle part, you have the, another beginning with an interview with a, a near relation who, of the person who committed suicide supposedly saying, no, it was a murder. And it turns out to have been a murder. Of course, one committed by another near relation, her step sibling, you know? All right, so the parallels there are pretty strong. And then we get to Running Grave. Now, in Running Grave, we don't get the suicide until the middle of the book. And as you just pointed out, we don't get the interview with her until the end of the book. And so this, this is an argument very much in favor of your idea of book eight being really the, you know, the continuation of book seven, the bleed from the first series into the second series, you know, eight, nine, and 10. Because eight is going to be, you know, the investigation that begins at the should have begun properly at the end of book seven, even though Rowling has set us up entirely to believe that Charlotte was a suicide throughout the entire series. It's been, you know, I, 
I think it's Ilsa that says, look, there's, there's two types of suicides. There's the one where she's just pretending, and then there's one where she's really going at it. You know, she's trying to kill herself. And we see an, a, a de facto you know, suicide in Troubled Blood. Only strikes you know, uh, Red Cross Knight behavior to save her that he'd do for anybody. Really the peak of his, his otherworldly love for people. You know, his, his really being the fury, you know, Tisiphon. He's, 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 he's that man. He's at the top of his game in Troubled Blood. We see him come down from that standard of helping her the way he would help anybody else to, to basically grinding her under his heel as a person that he doesn't give any um, love for because he wants so much for her to be out of the way so he can begin his relationship with Robin. And I, again, we're all on board with that. You know, I, I, I've seen hilarious things online where people start to explain it in really highfalutin psychological language how you can't be an enabler to a suicide victim is that you're not responsible for this that come on you know we get to see strike at his best in troubled blood do just the opposite of what these people are excusing in running grave and there's a problem here and that's because charlotte didn't commit suicide strike is really going to have to come to terms with the fact how much he has given up of his character in wanting to be united with Robin. That he's become much less a desirable man, in fact, by his desire to, you know, have a relationship with his partner. All right. I mean, th anyway, so the 147 thing you know, with the dragons gives us, you know, the pointer to the fact that that meeting, as you said, with Amelia Crichton at the end of Running Grave should have been where she says, hey, come on. She just gave a billionaire 10 stitches, you know, um, and, and he's denied, he says that, that uh, I love one of the unnamed sources in the Times says that, that uh, Landon Dormer, or, or Thingy Dormer, I think, I think Ilse calls her the first thing, you know, whenever someone says Thingy in, uh, in Harry Potter, that's not a good thing, in Harry or, or anything in Rowling, so she basically called, you know, Dormer the Dark Lord there, that, uh, interviewer for the Times asks for a comment from Dormer's office. He says uh, Landon's really not into drama or lies. Now, how could anyone spend 10 minutes with Charlotte Campbell Ross and not be into drama and lies? I mean, that, that, that's kind of like, that, that, that's, that's like she has hips, breasts, and, and long hair. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's who she is, is drama and lies. I mean, there's, there's some minimal amount of research you need to do <laughs> to, to come up with, with drama and lies. Seriously, I, you know, I, I think that beauty, drama, and lies are pretty much the complete Charlotte Campbell Ross package, right? I mean, I mean she's brilliant, too. She's funny. But uh, drama and lies are right up there um, with the essentials. All right, I, mean, I hope that answers your question about my, my structural work simply, you know, after the fact of your discovery, I'm, I'm, I'm all with you on the fact that the end of Running Grave should bleed right into the revelation in Strike 8 that Charlotte was murdered. I'm gonna, I'm, you mentioned earlier the um, li literature and life are, you know, Rowling's lake. I love the alliteration. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, maybe maybe books and bio too, you know. For, uh, um, there's a Romeo and Juliet moment in Running Grave that almost everyone missed. Nick, what is it, and why should we care if we're trying to figure out how Charlotte died, who killed her, etc.? Okay, so th this was in the um, the notices to, to the papers, and 
And there's a couple of things that caught my eye. So there was a statement from uh, Amelia and her mother, and then there was a separate statement from her half-brother, Sasha Lagarde, who's a professional actor. And he he gives uh, or quotes um, a passage from Romeo and Juliet, as as Shakespeare so often is, particularly when you when you you take a section of it and look at it. It's quite beautiful. Death lies on her like an untimely frost upon the sweetest flower of all the field. Now that's that's from the end of Romeo and Juliet, and it's from Lord's Capulet, um, Juliet's father. Of course, the whole reason why why Juliet commits suicide, you could argue, <laughs> yeah. is because of Lord Capulet's insistence that his daughter marries Paris. Now, now, what I didn't appreciate at the time, but what you picked up, John, was actually at, at the point he says that Juliet hadn't committed suicide. <laughs> this right. is in Act Four, so this is this is the point at which Juliet um, takes takes the the draft of living death and uh, and appears to be dead, but she hasn't committed suicide at the point that that, that said. Now, Sasha, being an actor, surely must know this better than I. So is there some sort of hidden message in there? And, John, I think you found some, something else about his name. Are we ready to point at our first suspect in the murder of Charlotte Campbell? Yeah, I, first of all, yeah, Sasha Lagarde, he's a professional thespian. This is standard repertoire. He's, you know, he's, he knows Romeo and Juliet. Hence his familiarity that he can drop this line um, off the cuff. You assume you don't. You assume it's not that that studied, but as you point out, it's a fake suicide. <laughs> you know, um, it's our first big red flag. You know, whoa, it's it's a, it's a fake suicide. And look, it's a, we we know that Amelia is her only full-blooded sibling. So now we've got a step sibling that's making this comment about a fake suicide. Now that that's again. You know, if you've got a semaphore kit with flags, you're going to pull out all the red flags from your kit there and start waving them like, whoa. But the, the big fun thing there is Sasha Lagarde, his, his name, you know, um, Lagarde, I mean, as, as you might expect, comes from it's like a, it's like a closed in space, usually for a protection. Some people say it's just a garden, hence Lagarde. You know? And Sasha comes from the word Alexander, which is another word for savior or messiah. It means literally the, the helper of men. So it's a pretty nice name. It's, it's the nice gardener. You know, I mean, it's, it's the guy you meet on the church grounds after a funeral and he takes you around and it shows you the property. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing. But in Trouble Blood, my favorite book, I mean, outside of Christmas Pig and Deathly Hallows, Trouble Blood is still just, you know, it's just the peak. It's just, it's just a great thing. But in that book, Max Priestwood, the largest symbol of, of the church. You know, he's basically, he's, he's the cross writ large. This is the truth. This is the, the defining symbol of Rowling's work is the cross. And the cross speaks here and says that he was once in a play with Charlotte's brother. And she, and she met Charlotte in a, at a party after a, a, an event with the brother that he calls Simon Lagarde. Not Sasha, but Simon Lagarde. Now, maybe that's just Max Priestwood misspeaking. But whenever you see that name, Simon, okay, that's, you know, that's the, is, is there another Lake Tell 
as big as Simon, Nick? As, as a casual vacancy fan, <laughs> yeah. that, that name sends shivers down my spine. Okay, I'm going to ask you to explain that in a minute. But for our listeners that may not be up to speed on this, there, there are seven crises or unresolved issues that haunt J.K. Rowling. And you know, we'll go through them at a, at a different thing. But the, the first two are just very well documented. You know, Rowling talks about the death of her mother as the death charge that blew up her life. And you get that. You get that. I mean, that's um, that's really the death of Lily Potter and stuff. I mean, there's 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 um, a lot to unpack there about Rowling and her mom. But Rowling and her dad, that's a live bomb, okay? And I know most of this, I should say, because of Nick's researches. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to come off as the real late guy here. But Rowling is conceived illegitimately. You know, it, it, it's, it's possible it was a pregnancy trap. And so she is born, what, four or five months after her parents' marriage. And there's a sense, and I, Nick will have to explain, you know, the, uh, the class elements involved in this, especially in, in Peter Rowling's life. But we do know that from the BBC interview that she, the day in the life that Rowling did in 2007, that, was it a year in the life? But anyway, that, that um, in that interview, she said that um, her father wanted a boy and was very disappointed that she was a girl and that um, wasn't upset that Diane was a girl, <laughs> but continued to be disappointed that Joe was not a girl and that they even had a name chosen for her, which was Simon John. Now, that was because his name is Peter John and Simon and Peter are near synonyms. I know they don't sound a lot alike, but because of the apostle Peter, his original name was Simon Barjona. And so throughout history, you get Simon and Peter being as in sync. And we, we, we see how painful Rowling remembers her childhood and her relationships with her father in casual vacancy. As Nick has said, really the most transparent biograph autobiographical piece that Rowling's ever written in that the, the real monster of that book is the father, Simon Price. Um, I'll let, let Nick talk about that if he wants to. But all the Peters and Simons inside Harry Potter, Cormoran Strike, everything is you know, casual vacancy are bad guys. You know, there's, there's Peter Pettigrew, most obviously. There's the um, Peter, who's the assistant to Johnny Ropeby. There's the Simmons House. There's the St. Peter's Nursing Home where Luca Ricci and the, and the, and the really wicked Ricci father is. You know, all the, all the you know, Luciferian characters in, in Troubled Blood wind up at St. Peter's. Um, if you see the name Peter or Simon in Harry Potter or anything, or, or Corbin Strike or anything Rowling has written, she's talking about you know, a wicked, wicked man. Or at least someone who is compromised somehow. It, it, and that's, that's a tell on her part. And so here we have Max Priestwood, the truth teller, calling Sasha Lagarde Simon Lagarde. Now, again, maybe it's a failure in memory, but when the truth teller even has a slip, it's that, that Rowling has ever thought of Sasha Lagarde as Simon Lagarde tells you that he has to jump way up on the suspect list. That this guy has some reason to want Charlotte dead. You know, maybe he's hired by 
the billion the billionaires i gotta be thinking the billionaires in here somewhere funding this whole thing you know he wants her gone because she, she knows too many things but that name is is the lake marker that rolling is saying this guy is who, who you think he is he's not the gardener who's who's there to help you know that he's a bad guy who's putting up a very good front i i should say that rolling in in her post about the transgender issue and why she's been writing about it brings up specifically the fact that if transgenderism was what it is today when she was growing up she could have easily been persuaded to take that route in order to become the son that her father always wanted I mean, this is how fundamental this issue is in her psychological development uh, anyway that's, that's a lot okay that's, that's I, you, that, you call it a fun find i mean that that's that's a uh, that's really a dark thing but i think yeah we're if we if we're, if we're putting together our list of suspects and, and you know you got jago ross as a suspect you got the billionaires as a suspect and they're kind of obvious they're a little too obvious but boy all the siblings have got to come on the page that they were hoping that she would cash into this billionaire's money and bring them out of all of their troubles and, and she failed in that regard all right, I, but, and we're in, we're in the lake. Here we are. We're 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 more than knee deep in the lake here, right? You're the, you're the lake expert, Nick. This the one area of your expertise and experience that always blows my mind is the UK class spectrum in context of people and events in the strike series. And that's, I mean, I I, I touched on that just briefly here about the whole Peter Rowling class condition at Rowling's conception as a child. Um, and I hope you'll talk about that eventually. But but you found a remarkable connection between Belgravia's Amelia, is it Crichton? I don't know how to pronounce it. Crichton. Crichton. And the play, The Admirable Crichton. What is the backstory here about which American readers like me are entirely clueless? You know, who is the Admirable Crichton? So I would like to talk more about about Rowling and the British class system. I, I think it's important to her. M maybe not consciously, because it isn't for many British people. But the, the British class system is so pervasive, is so structural to how we live. It's only really when I'm talking to you, John, that I, <laughs> I'm, I'm conscious of it at all. Um, but the Admirable uh, Crichton, so I am in my mid-50s, and I think for British people of my age and older, we hear the word Crichton and we think of the Admirable Crichton. And, and the Admirable Crichton was a play by the uh, author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barry, and we know it most probably from uh, a late 50s film uh, of the play. And the story follows, Crichton was uh, a butler, sort of chief servant to uh, an aristocratic family, known for his competence and his abilities. Um, and the family and the servants are uh, marooned on a desert island, um, absent any hope of escape. His employer, an aristocratic man, believes in the innate ability of people outside of the class system. Uh, and this is shown as their society sort of evolves on the island. Because Crichton is the only one that frankly knows how to do anything, he becomes the leader of the group. He becomes the aristocrat in, in their little social uh, situation. But to the point... Uh, that he almost marries the Earl's daughter, the aristocrat's daughter, when they are rescued and brought back to civilization, and things uneasily revert to where they were. So that's 
people of my age and older, we hear Crichton, that's what we think. People who are younger uh, in Britain and hear the word Crichton will think of uh, a TV series, The Red Dwarf, um, sort of received cult status on this side of the Atlantic. I think it's <laughs> never heard. Probably of it. <laughs> not to the same, not to the same huge <clears throat> appeal um, to Americans. But uh, Crichton is a robot, but with exactly the same qualities. So of of all the people on the spaceship, Red Dwarf, he's the one who knows how to do anything, even though he's in the most subservient position. Now, our Amelia Crichton, of course, uh, is. I would say upper middle class, not quite aristocratic, but upper middle class, um, the higher end of our social strata. Um, and we've seen a lot of characters that are, are either upper class or upper middle class, and they tend to be fairly useless individuals. They have huge <laughs> character flaws. Uh, they are not people that you would want to introduce to your mother, let alone have an evening with. Amelia at least is grounded. She has her own business. Of the family, it seems like she is the one that is organising things in terms of Charlotte. So she's uh, organising the funeral. She's making decisions uh, for Charlotte's children in terms of what they should and shouldn't see in terms of a, a suicide note. So I think I think we can put her down on the competent side of things, even though she's clearly not not the servant type of Crichton, but she has that competent decision-making sort of, of, of persona. I guess much more popular in the States would be Jeeves and Wooster. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. She is the Jeeves. Okay. You mentioned in our back channels, our moderator's back channels, that her husband has a position that suggests that he's upper class, maybe not an aristocrat, but close. Uh, right. So, yeah. So he's, um, he, he's a, a, an officer in the Blues and Royals. So the Blues and Royals... <laughs> he sees my are, face are, and blank, my blank stare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're a, mounted, a mounted regiment, which, which uh, John found absolutely astonishing that here in Britain we have, we have mounted regiments. Um, one, one of two that, guards, uh, that guard the king. We have the lifeguards, the senior regiment, and the Blues and Royals. They are the most aristocratic regiment in the British Army. So they are, they are at the very top of the social strata. Lest you think that uh, the British Army is is now little more than ceremonial, they have a day job. <laughs> so in their their day job, they are an armoured armoured reconnaissance regiment. Okay, this is a an interesting thing though. It sounds like her her husband has money, and she has some money. I mean, she's in Belgravia. That's not that's not that's yeah. not the uh, the down and outers spot in London, but she still owns a shop. You know, she's a shopkeeper. That's a different cast entirely from someone who shops in those places. Someone who works in those places is something different. And we see, again, go, going back to 147, forgive me, I'm going to lean on that today. We see that John Bristow, uh, the Bristow fortune has largely just gone away. That we, we only learn at the end that, that the stock that he has from his stepfather and his mother really isn't worth that much money. He needs Lula Landry's money. Um... The Chiswells, because of of a, a brother-in-law's mismanagement, what was his name again? He, he had to be one of the most comic figures in, in the whole series. Um, Jasper? Not not Jasper, but the the son-in-law that 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 uh, didn't uh, invest the money properly, and so lost half the family fortune. 
that um, we see the Chiswells are not quite down and out. Izzy is in good shape because she inherited her mother's money. So she's independent of this stuff. But the other Chiswells, they're in a hard way to include Raph. You know, Raph, Raph isn't going to inherit anything anyway just because of who he is. But he, he's grown up with money and in a, in a position of privilege. And now he's looking at a life where he's not going to be able to do that. He dreams of being able to live on the Riviera via his stubs. Amelia and her husband, it looks like that they came from real money. You know, that the father had that, that uh, castle on the island of Iran. You know, how do you pronounce that? What's the name of the... Uh, Aram. Aaron. Uh, the Isle of Aram. Aaron, yeah. okay. Um, and now she's a shopkeeper. I, I think there's a motive in here about, about um, the class levels. That again, she's happy if Strike just lets Charlotte be buried and forgotten. She's happy to have Strike tell her what was in the suicide note. Um, just happy to just go along. And this, this, this idiot guy, as you said, he's just throwing away everything he's ever learned as a uh, red cap or anything. And just, just uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to interview at all. I want this to be finished. Um, and she's happy to do that because um, maybe she made some money. Maybe she got a deal. I mean, she went on vacation as soon as Charlotte died. She went on a, what, a two-week vacation in the country? That, that doesn't sound like something that a shopkeeper does. Anyway, the class thing. I, I, I love the class thing. Uh, because that's, that's the kind of thing that if you don't get rolling situation, and I, I do hope you'll eventually share, Nick, maybe in, in a book or something, you're going to share um, <laughs> the whole uh, Peter Rowling history as much as we know it, as much as it can be known from you know, the records and such, that um, Rowling was in something like that situation herself as a child. Um, she grew up breathing that as her act. Well, before we get too chilly out here in the lake, <laughs> let's pop into the shed and warm up for a little bit. John, you talked in, in your piece about Rowling's signature misdirection, that, that technique she has, that makes it at least as likely that Charlotte was murdered as opposed to having committed suicide. And you used the term defamiliarization. Yeah, I have to admit that you know, Rowling studies, you know, the last 20 years has really been my education in English literature. I, I really didn't use the word defamiliarization <laughs> until I got into rolling studies. All right, I, I'm as sure as one gets with this kind of speculation, which is not very sure indeed, but is, is, is that because of the setup of Charlotte committing suicide, our believing it and it not being so is so carefully done. You know, I, I think Charlotte was murdered because we're led so surely to believe that it wasn't a murder. That's in absolute conformity with Rowling's most distinctive aim and method in her writing, namely knocking her readers off their high horse of accepted ideas via a strong turn away from the expected and conventional storyline or genre topos. You know, I mean, I've discussed this in a lot at Hogwarts Professor. You just go to Hogwarts Professor, the weblog, and type in defamiliarization or something. Um, the one genre and meta literary guide for taking se talking seriously about who killed Lita Strike is the part where I really went into this. But to see why Uncle Ted and Dave Polworth are simultaneously really disturbing to readers as potential suspects in Lita's death, and for that reason, very likely candidates, one needs to understand Rowling's use of what I call, you know, what, what lit geeks call defamiliarization in this direction. Um, that, to, to get that, you have to understand how Rowling writes and what her objectives are. 
the first thing is the big reveal at the story finish has to be a surprise, you know, a shock. In, in Russian foremost language, a defamiliarizing knight's move. You know, a knight is a weird chess piece, right? It, it, it looks like it's going forward and then it goes sideways. You know, it looks like, looks like it's, it's a, you know, a castle or a rook and all of a sudden it's, it's a bishop. You know, how, did that, how does it do that? That knight's move is what literature does. I mean, the actual murderer has to be someone that we really didn't suspect. And certainly not a man or woman whom the characters inside the story believe it. Those are the last people. You know, Rowling doesn't work that way. She's someone well-versed in the guides, the goals, the gods and goddesses of detective fiction, and is a lover of the big twist finish. Rowling is trying to blow up our conventional biases by having us experience estrangement in Coleridge's language. Let, 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 she has this experience, that estrangement in her series by our discovery of how blind we have been. For that reason alone, we know that Whitaker and Rokeby didn't kill Lita Strike, okay? Because Strike believes that, that, that Whitaker is evil and killed his mother. And even talking with Rokeby for a few minutes on the phone in Trouble Blood or hearing the story of his conception talked about in public caused the usually remarkably self-controlled Strike to lose his bearing and respond with unhinged outrage. If either Whitaker or Rokeby turn out to be the murderers of Lita Strike, where is the surprise, right? That'll just be like, oh, it's just like we always thought. And this works both ways. You know, if the ending has to be a lightning strike surprise to the reader, then the door is open to some, you know, to wingnut theories like Lucy Fantoni did it, you know, or the Whitaker grandfather, or Guy Sumay, you know, they're, they're the murderers. I mean, I get, you know, the lightning strike idea. Those ideas are credible if only that they're preposterous and we need something out of left field for the series finish. But Rowling's objectives are not limited just to, to shocking us, you know, this defamiliarization thing. She also is determined to drive home a message. You know, it, it, about violence against women, about bias and bigotry, and akin to that last, especially in terms of learning grave and the cult thing, about the dangers of unthinking and belief, what Rowling refers to in all her interviews as fundamentalism. There must also be a subliminal but profound illustration of spiritual reality in her stories, especially with respect to there being life after death and some kind of judgment with respect to his soul's virtue and vice. That, she calls that her obsession with morality and mortality. You, you, you tell me, Nick, how, how the preposterous subjects, suspects like Sister Lucy and Old Man Whitaker meet those criteria, and I'll jump on either bandwagon. You know, means, <laughs> means, motive, and opportunity are the standards in strike worlds, the genre of crime novels, and murder mysteries especially. So suspects have to be credible on all three points. But in the meta world of literary criticism, there are different standards than means, motive, and opportunity. Namely, what is specifically it is that the writer consistently tries to communicate. The usual suspects and the new nutty offerings don't check any of these boxes. Okay, and, and most important in the essentials of Rowling's lake inspiration and shed artistry is her creating story rings that act as alchemical alembics on the hearts of her readers. Her characters embrace and experience transformational change about how they see and understand themselves in the world. Their readers, they, we suspend disbelief in poetic faith and imagination. We're expected to share in this cathartic change via imaginative experience of the subliminal structure and symbolism as well as the surface story points. The murderer of Lita Strike, you know, or of Charlotte Campbell, to have this metaphoric effect on Strike and on the readers of his stories is going to have to be the closest thing to a mirror reflection to Cormoran as exists on planet Earth. Okay, we already have the rings and the literary alchemy in full force. We just need the confrontation with self that forces transcendence of strikes, identity, and ego. 
in Lena Strike's case, I think that's Ted Nancaro or Dave Polworth. But you take that meta-literary approach to explaining why Charlotte Campbell was murdered rather than committing suicide, that turns largely on how well readers are set up to accept, even the embrace, expect the idea that Charlotte topped herself. Charlotte, in a nutshell, having killed herself is no surprise. It's expected in every strike novel, her predilection for self-harm, either staged or for real, is mentioned. It's Strike's concern about this that moved him to chase after her in his first explosive encounter with Robin at the top of the stairs in, in Cooper's Calling. Trouble Blood features the Easter morning suicide attempt at Simmons' house. There's the name, Simmons. There it is. And Strike's successful attempt to find and revive her. All through Running Grave, Charlotte seems increasingly fragile, hysterical, and pointed towards self-destruction. Readers are primed by all of these pointers to believe the news that she killed herself when the report finally arrives of her death. We were relieved. The idea that, that someone else killed her and staged the suicide, consequently, is very difficult for us to expect. We, we've, as I said earlier, we've all become Roy Carver and Cuckoo's Calling shouting, the cow jumped! And, and we become incredulous, even angry, Nick, that anybody like you would suggest she was murdered. Uh, uh, the, the supposed suicide note, despite or even because of the recent events of her life, proves to these readers somehow that it has to have been a suicide. And, and those recent events add up to a lot in her Strike 7 encounters with Strike and reports about her, all of which suggest that she was in serious trouble. She's positively hounding her ex for him to talk with her. She needs to share something with him. Something perhaps about her family, about Jago Ross, about the American billionaire she's dating, about the arrest for attacking that man. Her expression is described, as you said, as strangely blank and glassy-eyed in the second chapter of Running Grave, a note that if readers give it any thought, except as evidence not of her being drugged or despairing, but as a pointer to her mental illness and a habit of self-harm. Okay, so we've been set up that for the idea of shot committing suicide, overlooking the evidence that she's in some kind of danger, but as I mentioned, there's also our reader's desire that she die, okay? We, all of us wish, as he now does, for his emotional history and landscape to be cleared so he can marry Robin. We want the same thing that, that for Charlotte to be dead and buried. You know, we're, we are on board consequently with strikes and difference to her calls for help. Some even writing involved apologetics for the fictional characters complicit in her death. They, they all, the strike is not guilty, they're telling us, you know, about this, okay? Those who do this overlook the transformation and strike from his having saved Charlotte from a blood because he would do the same for anyone. A selfless, even sacrificial quality of love of neighbor or other into a character in Running Grave that deliberately and callously ignores another fictional person's anguish cries for help. That is not a step up. <laughs> that is a profound descent from, from Strike's character. One those empathizing with him embrace because, like him, readers want Charlotte gone from the scene. So both Strikes and Robin's concern about her psychological shadow over their relationship evaporates. Okay. In addition to the prolonged setup of the idea that Charlotte would kill herself and the as-long progression of Strikes' feelings for Robin coming at last to the fore, requiring his feelings for Charlotte to recede, there's one more pointer to Rowling's defamiliarizing artistry in laying the ground or setting the trap for readers to embrace the death of Milady Berserko as a suicide, no questions asked. Everybody did except for you, Nick. The, the novel in which this stunning setup comes to a climax, Running Grave, is one about mind control and cultist thinking. 
Throughout this novel, readers witness the madness of the UHC and those who fall prey to its mind games and deception. Readers become pretty smug about this. Like Strike and Robin before her immersion in the real experience of sleep and calorie deprivation and narrative channeling of Chapman Farm, we believe that we readers are above or immune to that kind of deception. Why are these characters so easily taken in? Readers are meant to be asking themselves, I sure won't be susceptible to that kind of thing, which is perhaps the best possible setup for our being duped by a master of reader mind control. We are all victims, in other words. <laughs> well, okay, again, all of us, we're all victims, Zephyr Nick, of a brilliant literary deception akin to the death of Dayu and the stage magic manifestations at Chapman Farm. Charlotte didn't kill herself, as Rowling has gone to such lengths to have us believe, but was murdered. And readers are about to have, in Strike 8, if, you're, if your idea, and I, I'm, I'm bored with it, we readers are about to have the experience of cult survivors, of being embarrassed by how much we accepted at face value without a critical look at the hard evidence. Along with Strike, Strike fandom felt that we could write Charlotte's suicide note themselves. There's no need to read it or to be astonished that's been destroyed by someone previous novels suggest must be a prime suspect in the victim's demise. You know, siblings are murderous, right? And there's a Christmas pig thing, right? If you, if you identify with this doll, I'm throwing that doll out the window. You know, these half siblings are a dangerous lot, you know? And, and yet we overlooked all the evidence that we have inside the books and in everything Rowling has written that this wasn't what it seemed because we've been brainwashed. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious at the end of a brainwashing novel? I mean, it's too much. All right, I, I, that's, that's, that was a long thing. You know? I, I, but that, that, that I think is really the best part of what you've done, Nick, is, is that you've, you've connected the dots between Rowling's core artistry, which is this shocking, defamiliarizing, estranging idea from the way we normally think and having to come in to, to see how much of what we think is our acceptance of the surface story. You know, what, what's easiest for us to believe. And that Charlotte's supposed suicide is that in spades for Strike. He wants her dead, therefore let's ignore all of the evidence. Okay, that's, 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 that's all meta-literary and heady stuff, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it, 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 it's ultimately what made me really come on board with the Charlotte was murdered theory was, ah, there it is. But there are relatively mundane reasons for thinking that Charlotte was murdered, Nick. And, and you list, you know, you list them all in your post. What are, what are the loose threads about Milady Berserko that will take a whole book, Strike 8, to tie up? I mean, there are lots of mundane reasons. So, so we, we've talked about the blank and glassy-eyed Charlotte. If if Charlotte committed suicide in this book, we don't know why, and we will never find out. There was the fight at at Landon Dormers where where Charlotte was arrested, and it, it by all accounts it was a violent affair. If if Charlotte committed suicide, we don't know what that was about, and we will never find out. We have um, possible diagnosis of cancer. We have way back in, in Strike and Charlotte's history the was she, wasn't she pregnant? She committed suicide. We won't know any of that and we will never find out. But for me, the biggest 
the biggest hanging loose end is Charlotte herself. In almost every book in which she appears, there is a so long farewell moment. Back in Cuckoo's Calling, when Strike picks up the boxes, that's it. Charlotte's done, we won't see Charlotte again. When Strike solves the divorce case and allows Charlotte to divorce Jago with her money largely intact, great, that's done now, we won't see Charlotte again. And yet every book, I, I talk about this with, with Beatrice Groves, when a new book is coming up, and the, the question is, will we see Charlotte? No, we won't see Charlotte again. She's done. She always comes back. And if this was just a suicide, why? Why Why did we need to know about Landon Dormer? Why did, why did we need to know about the breakup with Jago and her heartless attitude to her, her own children? These, these are just... There's no, there's no depth to them. There's no meaning unless Charlotte's character has a bigger impact in the series. And just committing suicide isn't it. It can't be it. I mean, you, you conclude your, your piece, John, with some notes about suicide in the strike series and you know there've been quite a few of them and you talk about a three-part approach now this this was challenging it was challenging to me and i and i think to some of our readers as as well um <laughs> why don't you close the podcast with with your parthian shot of all the suicides in rowling's work especially those in the strike novels and charlotte's theoretical wow. suicide in the running um, grave okay i, I mean we <laughs> It's going to be a ring, I guess. Nick. We're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to start with what you and I talk about as as uh, the fourth generation of Rolling Studies, and what we aim to do here at Rolling Studies, the podcast, is again take a, a larger view of Rolling's work than just the current book and the one that's coming, but to, to read her work in light of all of her other work, and we aim to do that obviously profound emphasis on her shed artistry. And also, we're going to bring Rowling back into Rowling studies and talk about her personally. And when you get to Rowling's, her defamiliarizing move here with Charlotte being murdered, all of those things come into play. I mean, I, we talked, I, I talked already about just the structural piece. You know, that the beginning of the first book in the series, the middle of the central books in the series, and the end of the seventh book, at least in the, set, in the, in the first ring cycle of the series, point us, that symmetry point us to the suicide was staged and the death was really a murder. And, that, and that's going to all be revealed in the eighth book, cleverly concealed and running great. So that's, that's our shed, you know, that, that ring argument is all shed. And then we went, you know, into the meta-literary reasons which is Rowling's signature penchant for defamiliarization. Okay, you know, the, the reason we all thought, Nick accepted, that Charlotte topped herself is despite the surfeit of fake suicides in the series, Rowling has been talking on slow drip for seven books about Charlotte as a potential suicide and showed us an earnest attempt at self-slaughter and troubled blood. I mean, so that, you know, it's, it's mind control. It, she's, she's got us, right? That's, that's the meta-literary stuff. That's, that's, again, that's shed. And then we go back to the lake thing that Simon Lagarde discussion, that's a, a critical lake issue for Rowling. Rowling's non-relationship with her father consequent to her, his emotional abuse of her as a young woman. 
okay? But I, I want to go to the, I want to go back into the lake, okay? This, this is a fourth generation Rolling Studies podcast. One disguised as a running grave discussion and a speculation about strike eight with, with another late question. Why is suicide successful, attempted, but survived, fake to cover up murders, whatever? Why is suicide such a big deal in the strike series? The only suicides I can think of in the Potter books are Dumbledore's assisted death by Snape, which is really more like euthanasia than, than self-destruction, and Pettigrew's auto-strangulation. And, and those those don't work really as suicides. You know, Crystal Whedon kills herself in casual vacancies, nightmare climax. Yeah, but in in that book of despairing characters, it's a marvel she's the only one. I mean, I, I think everybody is is is, is, a, is a potential for suicide in, in casual vacancy, right? In the strike novels, in contrast, there's at least one per book, and there are a bevy in Running Grave. Okay, we, we start off with the Lula Landry stage suicide in Cuckoo. We got the Elspeth Fancourt version of Sylvia Plath suicide with head in the oven type thing. That's the foundation crime of Silkworm. Lita's strike mysterious death that was ruled a suicide is center stage in Career of Evil. We get Jasper Chiswell's death on Lethal White. It's, it's, it's a patricide stage as a suicide. Janice Beatty's first Douthwaite inspired murder in Trouble Blood was the stage suicide of Joanne Hammond. The epigraph source for Strike Four. Two was, was Ibsen's Rosmer's Home, a play that ends with a double suicide. All things suicidal pick up in strike six. Edie Ledwell attempted suicide before she was murdered in Inkback Heart. He and Nevin identifies as sui suicidal. An anomic suicide per Durkheim is a theme of that book, if not the whole series. Characters committing or attempting suicide and running grave include <laughs> Flora Brewster, the stolen prophet, Allie Graves, Emily Purbright, Cherry Gittins, Jordan Rainey, and of course, Charlotte Campbell Ross. I, I think that your theory, the strange death of Charlotte Campbell, that she was murdered. I want to I end this conversation, if we're going to end it here, you know, with some late thoughts about this focus on suicides, especially those that were actual murders and as good as murders. Self-destruction consequent to being driven to it. We have to start in Rowling's Lake and ask, what unresolved personal issues or experiences could have inspired this series-long preoccupation with suicide. Now, when you're in the lake, there's a lot of things in the lake, right? We don't have a clear line of sight. We don't. There can be any number of experiences that Rowling has had, traumatic or personal or private, about which we know nothing. The death by suicide of a friend, a suicide attempt in her family or circle of acquaintances, even suicides that she heard about in her Lumos days of visiting orphanages and caged children. But, you know, a more obvious and near certain grounding for Rowling's borderline obsessive writing about suicide is her own experience at the nadir of her life with clinical depression, an experience in 1994 as a single mother after the failure of her first marriage that she described as becoming suicidal. She went public with this revelation in 2012, the year before Cuckoo's Calling was published. As she wrote in 2020, like every other human being on this planet, I have a complex backstory which shapes my fears, my interests, and my opinions. I never forget that inner complexity when I'm creating a fictional character. I think it's clear that she never forgets her complex backstory when she's planning out, say, you know, 10 book novels either. That so many of the suicides in the Strike series are actually murders. And most are acts of fear, depression, or despair into which the suicides are driven by others delivers the message that true suicide as such is a myth. Killing oneself as a positive choice rather than from despair 
that there are no other choices to be made and that death is preferable to the pain on offer in broken relationships does not appear in the strike novel. Someone, is, someone else is always responsible, at least in part. You know, a threatening Abigail Glover, a John Bristow murderer who disguises as a suicide, or a killer enemy who is invisibly in the background of the attempted self-destruction. And Rowling shows her hands on this in D.B. Mack, you know, probably a character that's, that's you know, least like her, right? An L.A. black rapper of, you know, gigantic size. But asked about Lula Landry's suicide, the rapper cum psychologist commented that her death was really a murder months before Strike was able to prove it. He says, Lula Landry's death by suicide was fucked up, man. That was fucked up, replied D.B., running his hand over his smooth head. His voice was soft, deep, and hoarse. I'm not doing a very good impersonation. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> has, the, has the faintest trace of a lisp. That's what they do to success. They hunt you down. They tear you down. That's what envy does, my friend. The motherfucking press chased her out that window. Let her rest in peace, I say. She's getting peace right now. Okay. Now, if Evan Willis is right about the center of his detractor's pyramid being ink black heart, then Rolling Shed worked to transform her lake inspiration around her own history of suicidal thoughts into universal and sublime meaning for her global audience makes a certain sense, the meaning being in the middle of structural artistry. It's in Strike 6 that Rolling Galbraith brings up anomic suicide, which is a subject explored in a book by Ernest Durkheim you find in the Art Studios bookshelf. That theme, a critique of the prisons in which internet-captured souls live, is much more inclusive and universal than her projecting into story her own experience of sexual assault, an abusive marriage, clinical depression, and suicidal thoughts. She's raising her lake inspiration to really a global theme about you know, an indictment really of our age. A fourth-generation discussion of suicides will have to include the backdrop of Christmas Pig, also conceived in 2012, namely the issue of sibling rivalry, even a murderously violent step-sibling. All right, you got John and Charlie Bristow with Lula Landry. We got Freddie and Raph Chiswell. We got Abigail Glover and Dayu Graves Waste. Those are the axis crimes of the series. Future readers of Rowling's work will not fail to connect the dots, as we've already done in Christmas Pig, between Rowling's home situation at the time of her planning the Strike series and the writing of the first book. Okay, and this, this is probably going to upset people, but here it is. You know, the Christmas Pig differs from the Strike series in that it reflects another Murray family issue. It has as its foundation story the agony of a young child in a blended family whose biological father is absent physically and emotionally and whose older stepsister is a bully consequent to her own issues about daddy. The serious reader of Rowling and one even superficially familiar with her life does not strain his or her eyes to see David and Mackenzie Murray and Jessica Orantes here as the story models for Jack and Holly, especially as Mackenzie Jean Murray was seven years old in 2012, the year of the story's inspiration and the age of Jack, the boy in the story. In fact, Mackenzie's age in the story and the age of Jessica Orantes at that time in 2012 are exact matches. The only bit absent from that summary is Holly's symbolic murder of her stepbrother, Jack, by throwing it out the window of a moving car. You know, the identity object of his mother's love and his own work. If, that, if, if Christmas Pig were a strike novel, the story would be reorganized so that it was about discovering that, you know, she, Holly did it. Holly was the murderer, right? 
that lake identification of Rolling Story stuff, if done correctly, should be immediately followed, as I think I'm already doing here, a discussion of what work Rowling does with this detritus from her unconscious mind struggle with painful issues to raise them up from projection narrative into engaging story. Okay, and I, I've written all that up about Christmas Pig. and Discussing the Strike series in light of Pig, which is to say in light of her work as a whole, as well as its roots at the bottom of Rowling's lake and its fruits cultivated in her shed greenhouse, is the work of fourth generation Potter pundits and serious strikers. Here, here I am. You know, here we are, Nick. I'm, I'm, we, our first podcast is supposed to be fourth generation stuff, and we're talking about the Strike novel in hand and Strike Eight. You know, the one on the horizon. And I'm, I'm hoping that the hypocrisy police harpies will give me a pass here in consideration of my deployment of the three aspects of fourth generation criticism. We're talking about her work as a whole. We're talking about the lake content and we're talking about the shed stuff. Your theory, Nick, that Charlotte was murdered, I think is even more credible in light of that three-tiered approach, okay? An understanding of Rowling's previous work is essential in grasping what she's doing in the strike novels. An awareness of her life issues clarifies the story's inspiration and the knowledge of her shed artistry, the traditional tools she deploys to deliver her anagogical meaning of, of transformation, even apotheosis, all that, that, all that mythological content of her work. Is, is what simultaneously lifts them above popular fiction and explains their popularity, okay? Structure, defamiliarization, Peter Simon, and, you know, suicide, you know, after Arantes, that, 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 that gets us there. There's, there's a lot more to say about suicide, and I hope we'll do this in future podcasts. You know, we've got to talk about Solway and Coagula, you know, self-transformation by intentional self-destruction. I mean, that, that's suicide, right? But but this podcast is really just an opening marker on that subject and a continuing introduction to fourth generation thinking and methodology. Okay, so that's a lot. Okay, but Nick, this all goes back eventually to, you know, how you did it, you know, because if you hadn't figured that, I still, I'm, I know that if you hadn't come up with this idea, it never would have occurred to me. I, I, I'm not giving place to anybody, Nick, on my grasp of Rowling's shed artistry, her defamiliarization. My, my PhD thesis is on this, and I missed the fact that Charlotte was almost certainly murdered. I mean, that, 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 that to me is, is simultaneously embarrassing to me, and I think a tribute to Rowling's remarkable skills in this. I mean, that, that all of her work from book one to book seven was to set us up for that. Um, Hats off to you for getting it, and, and to Rowling, you know, for for being that good. I mean, I I have to say, when I was when I was reading it, it wasn't even a suspicion. As I say, I was shocked. I was shocked really reading the Amelia interview that she didn't demand the investigation. But that is largely down to you, and the guys at Hogwarts Professor that have been, you know, banging this chiastic structure <laughs> drum for for so long that it's it's become embedded in me. As I read, I, I think perhaps I had the benefit that I, I was I was um, head down going for it cover to cover, whereas very much you were doing the Herculean task. And guys, if you haven't read it, you really do need to read John's ring structure posts on the running grave in meticulous detail. John has documented not just the structure of the series and the structure of the book, but of each individual part and and 
I mean, even just looking no, at very the kind, chance. It's I, again, just one more point of embarrassment for me that that uh, the guy that pointed to the answer that you found <laughs> was oblivious, oblivious to that answer. Um, this, this is this has been a play. I hope I hope our listeners have half the fun that we've had doing this. What's what's next on the agenda? I, 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 we've talked about are we going to do a Christmas pig show or a Christmas Carol Christmas pig show? I mean, what, what are we going to do for for? So, so we're aiming to release a podcast um, every two weeks or every fortnight for guys this side of the Atlantic. So uh, I'm I mean, Christmas themed. Oh, think about that. I, I just I just posted something at uh, the Substack site that uh, Robin is sterile. Changed my mind. Um, and it's it's uh, that was a lot of fun to write. That was a lot of fun to write. I, it's, it's it's I think it's on much shakier ground than Charlotte Campbell committed suicide, but it, it, it you'll you'll see the shed, you'll see the lake, see the previous work thing coming up there in that that conversation. And I I do hope we'll talk about that. There's a, there's a website rollingstudies.com and it has a chat option on it. Believe it or not. And you can send us questions. They'll, they'll pop right into our inboxes, and we will be sure to discuss those, uh, what things that you want us to discuss, what what aspects of this show upset you or intrigued you, or you want to know more about, um, and what shows you want us to do in the future. We've got we've got plenty to talk about here because we're really just be, we're really just beginning to open up. I think the uh, the proper methodology for reading rolling this fourth generation. Of yeah, I think, and if, if fourth-generation scholarship is going to work, it needs to be a dialogue. So, guys, please do get in touch, either in the chat facility at Hogwarts Professor or submit your questions uh, at Rolling Studies. 